0: forward slash the fighting cock to get started and to help the podcast. Thank you very much. Have a great day and enjoy the show.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com.
2: This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: GEICO asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, GEICO can help
3: Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Fighting Cock podcast. Today I'm joined by Daniel G. Correct. Did it? <laughs> uh, you're a football lawyer, a firm called Sheridan's, uh, but more importantly, more personal to the Fighting Cock is that you're the author of Dundee, a book, uh, a, no, let me, let me say it in full. Dundee, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. Mouthful, but... Yeah You're right, <laughs> but it's necessary, I think. Yeah. So just so people get an understanding of what it was. But I can take a stab at in the dark about what you do based on that title. But what, what what's a football lawyer? What is that? Is that what you are?
4: You're a football lawyer. Yeah, I mean, what is it? it? And what do it's they do? A good question. So uh, I've been thinking about that for quite some time, to be fair. <laughs> but it's more or less. What I think any lawyer that's a football fan would like to do is the truth and I'm a football fan really and I've always wanted to try and get into the industry and do that type of work but generally the type of stuff I do day to day um, revolves around transfers, uh, usually acting for players um, and or their agents, um, around contract renegotiations. So, although most of the sta- employment standard employment contract is a template, it doesn't doesn't move, doesn't change. All of the payments, uh, all of the bonuses, all of the release clauses, all of the buyback related stuff, um, uh, definitions of all different types of things have been appearance and all that type of thing. All of those type of negotiations or drafting, I will help with. You um, you can't say the players you represent. Totally so fair, um,
3: but you have represented players from Spurs and other Premier League football clubs in the
4: past or perhaps currently do or alright no. oh yeah no 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 I can say oh, you can say you fine. do but not yeah agree. exactly so you know I've been I've been really privileged to work with lots of high profile um, Premier League players yeah. across the you know all of their all of the league clubs and um, usually it comes around because I work with a lot of different football agencies and agents who have those players under representation contract. So a lot of the time, it will be the agents that will be phoning me up on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis saying, we've got this issue, we've got this commercial deal, we're about to renegotiate a contract, we're about to do a boot deal, we've got this problem with the player being in the press, the player wants to buy a house, the player's getting divorced, whatever it may be. Not and, that I'm a divorce lawyer. No, no, but every, anything to do with law around the players. Exactly, not- because a lot of the time, you know, I, as much as I see myself as a guy that will sit down on a computer and draft particular parts of a contract or help amend or do whatever, a lot of the time, my collective experience is that I've dealt with a lot of the matters that crop up on a day-to-day basis. So when one agent asks me, Daniel, have, you know, you dealt with a particular newspaper because we've got this story that might be a problem for us, I'll go, well actually our reputation management team have done exactly that and we know the editor and we need to get in touch with them to clarify it before a story goes out. So we've we've seen a lot of it before. How might that conversation go? So you've got a player's done X, Y, and Z, whether it's true or not, and
3: you ring the editor and you say what you're about to print is illegal or can you do us a favour
4: or we're gonna put an injunction on it? What well there's all of the above. So and none of the above is the truth, and a lot of it. So I specifically won't necessarily do liable or defamation work because it's a very specific area. We've got an unbelievable team upstairs at Sheridan's, five or six strong, that do that type of work day in day out. And when I mean you put a call into the editor, they've got, there are specific phone numbers for each newspaper that um, uh, that you contact the in-house teams to be able to say you've printed this story but it's actually factually incorrect mm. or you're going to print the story and you haven't given us the time to be able to, for example, comment on its accuracy or these type of things. And some of the times then they will go ahead and do and some of the times they'll listen to us um, and all our team to be able to, you know, put across the actual true nature of the story or whatever is going on. It's fascinating.
3: How often does that...
4: How often are players trying to get
3: injunctions or, or trying to prevent a story from coming out?
4: You only ever, you only ever see that in the headlines where injunctions type of thing actually a lot of the time or players not wanting to put stories out there or trying to get not get stories in the press. But ultimately, you know, 99.9% of all of the players I've ever acted for and hopefully will act for never get into these type of issues. Mm. I'm not saying players don't make mistakes. One of the main things I say in the book is understand that players are fallible just yeah. like us Yeah, just like we make mistakes on a day to day basis and understand that um, you know mistakes happen but give everyone a little bit of a break yeah. <laughs> is, the, is the truth yeah, yeah. Um, you know um, I think footballers get held to a pretty high standard when actually you know um, everyone's as human as the next yeah I and mean, you look at
3: what Raheem Sterling has gone through
4: hmm. and the way that he's
3: been treated and, and victimised often and I think actually the fallout of that will
4: perhaps end up with a slightly fairer press towards footballers maybe um, if I could just say one of the interesting yeah. things there is a general theme which I talk about in the book a bit is about the power of social media to do good yeah. so we talk about Raheem for example he put out an in- I think it was an Insta post I think it was an Insta post, basically just talking about his experience um, and um, you know the contrast in press approach to particular things. How great is it that um, footballers can have that direct communication? Direct to the fan, not through any media outlet, completely unfiltered, to say exactly what they want to say. Yeah, fifteen years ago, that's not possible. Mm. Now it's instantaneous. It has you know direct newsworthy impact, and you know you don't have to go through a mouthpiece. That's true. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. There's enough people on Twitter trying to destroy it
3: though, the barrage of vitriol that gets thrown for people's way. Um, so I'm just going to go straight into kind of the transfer stuff because it's the most interesting thing for fans. Um, how how complicated is a transfer deal? And just to caveat that with fans think it's like. Well, I think most fans think like it's like Championship Manager. Thirty million pounds. Here's give us moves to Yeah.
4: and they say yes. We say yes, and it's not like that. No, very very much so. So like it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the way I've described it in the book is it's like multiple games of 3D chess if that's the right way of saying it that like if you can imagine 10 chess boards being played at the same time by different clubs and agents trying to move in particular ways that you hope that at some point five different things align which create the opportunity for one thing to happen and if one thing happens and the second thing happens and then the third thing happens because something else is going on which means that opening is the case for someone else then everything aligns beautifully for four hours, and if then that deadline doesn't get hit, then it's gone again. It's like a wormhole wow. opening up, if that's the right way. <laughs> so what I mean is, is like I don't try, and, try and give an example. It. It's like an agent for three windows might know that four different clubs have. Uh, a need for four different strikers. And you might also know that there's four other teams that are willing to sell a striker for a certain amount of money, strikers for a certain amount of money. But you may know also that there are three other agents who say that they act for the other player. And you may know that the other sporting directors may have a a tendency to know what the price range might be for something. So if one thing happens, one transfer potentially occurs, Mm -hmm. the 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 chain reaction might mean that that club has money to be able to spend which then means that that, player might, that team might be able to go for that striker and that you know, as that player's agent, that you have a window to be able to approach the director of football to say, right, we know you've got that money, what about this player? But that has only come along, not because of that one phone call that's happened at that split second, but three windows behind, you've actually been able to work out that you know the needs of those particular clubs at the particular time um, and those aims and objectives fit at that exact moment.
3: That's a nightmare. That's like... Um, it's like uh, a Morata going to Atletico Madrid so that Iguain can, because acm yep. can then buy. There's like a triangle yep. of clubs. Or when Özil moved to Arsenal, which yep. freed up the additional money for them to buy Bale. Yep. Which was a
4: wonderful period of time for Spurs fans. <laughs> uh, well it's the same, for example, very briefly with Coutinho moving. There's always actions and counteractions and re- reactions, but. Continue going to Barcelona mm. in part only because of uh, Neymar. Uh, Liverpool then being able to get um, Van Dijk and Allison as a result in the two windows. Roma being able to reallocate that money as well, and Southampton being able to buy as a result. So does that just circulation of money mm. as a result of particular high-profile transfers? So the
3: answer is it's very complicated, and and it's often a, there are powers
4: outside of a, in, the individual club that prevent them from.
3: From getting the players that they
4: want. Of course, and the other side of things of the transfers is that, you know, I think people are becoming, and fans are becoming a lot more educated through podcasts just like you guys and lots of other um, Twitter feeds and, um, you know, guys like Swiss Ramble doing fantastic things as well, yeah. is um, the economics of a transfer. So, you know, when directors of football, when um, head scouts, when transfer committees, where, um, who are managing directors, whoever it is at the club that has the ultimate control of the, um, um, of the purse strings and the target list and the talent identification process, you know, ultimately, when someone says, right, well, it's a £35 million transfer, you know, again, as I mentioned in the book, um, a £35 million pound transfer is never a £35 million pound transfer right. for lots of different reasons but if I just give you three the first is usually a £35 million pound transfer is usually only probably about two thirds guaranteed right. and what I mean so, by that is is that the guaranteed payments i.e. the payments that the selling club will, uh, the buying club will give to the selling club will be set over maybe two or three seasons so like an instalment? Exactly. It's literally on instalments. So Every transfer? Not all. But some, majority. depending on the negotiation positions, but the vast majority are instalments. So I'll give you an example. £35 million headline transfer might be two £10 million um, instalments, one on uh, completion of the transfer and one on the first anniversary of the transfer. That's 20 million out of the 35. Mm -hmm. But the other 15 million might be dependent on whether the player plays 50 games for the club. Mm -hmm. Another uh, 2.5 million might be whether the team wins the Champions League. Mm -hmm. Another 2.5 might be if the team wins the league. Right, so a a proportion of the transfer would be kind of almost pie in the sky. Contingent is what they call it really, which is exactly right. Which is, it's only dependent on performance of the buying club so that's one thing that's always quite important to, to stress which is 35 million quid is never usually 35 million quid without the success of the buying team yeah because that's, that's exactly
3: what you think you think oh, well we've got you know Arsenal fans at the moment I'm not this isn't a, I'm not attempting to dig and I know you're not an Arsenal fan but you're not a Spurs fan either so what when Arsenal fans go running and raving about Arsenal's not spending money mm. they spend money mm. they're spending vast amounts of money on wages mm. And often, I saw one of your interviews. You talked about the the bigger implication is the size and length of a player's contract, rather than the fee that they pay. Exactly. Whereas fans seem to just locked on to these transfer fees, rather than the, extent,
4: the length of the contract and the wages. And that literally puts me right onto the second point, which you exact, exactly spot on with is you know everybody sees the thirty five million pound transfer fee query. It's never usually thirty five million pounds that mm-hmm. figure. But more importantly the long term liability over a four five six year deal maybe say four or five year deal for those players that are earning that type that are being transferred for that type of money may be another thirty forty fifty million pounds mm. it's you know it could be the a high profile player could be on five six seven eight million pounds a year plus image rights payments plus bonuses plus loyalty bonuses signing on et cetera fees so Ultimately, you know, without um, putting too fine a margin on it, the, the liability of a club for a £35 million transfer may actually be a smaller transfer fee, but a much larger wage implication, which could get up to, you know, all in. Sixty, seventy, eighty million pounds over the length of the player's contract, yeah. and that's not including agents' fees, by the way, as well, which is usually and can be up to five percent of the player's basic salary that a club will pay on the player's behalf as well. So, all in all, the bit that I know that we've chatted about previously and before is, you know, transfers and how they're actually calculated and how people see them. You know, the fee, the transfer fee is only one element, sometimes a smaller element of the much bigger wage issue. And also, you know, the agency payment, which is, can be, you know, as we've seen with some of the reported figures, Why substantial. do players pay their own agents' fees? Short answer or long answer? Uh, a lot, a lot <laughs> to get through, <laughs> it's a short one. Is it favour to the players, a curry favour with the players? So, historically, the way that things have evolved in terms of the agents' rules, brought in by FIFA and and the FA for example in the UK is that um, as a benefit for the player signing with the club the club will pay the agent on the player's behalf Right, so it's just a universal It's a universally accepted approach Now just like when you, uh, if you are an employee of a company have a company car or uh, have medical insurance that's classed as a P11D benefit yeah. and I'm not a tax advisor here I'm not going to go into P11D benefit structures but what that means is that still the player has to pay the tax right. on the amount right. that the club pay to his agent on his behalf right. so the player still does have to pay tax to HMRC yeah. in his annual return yeah. but it's not as much as he otherwise would have to pay if he paid it to his agent himself right so it's it's really a tax benefit it's a it's a tax benefit exactly right
3: it's a tax benefit because they need more money (laughs) they need wait I don't know whatever that's a different conversation altogether Um, do you know how the Sissoko because one of the one of the things that Spurs fans have been arguing about is that we paid 30 million pounds of Sissoko it sounds like actually a duration the total cost of that contract and, 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 and the fee would be much
4: more than that but do you know Do you know the details of how that payment is uh, was set up? I don't. No. Um, in terms of the transfer fee payable yeah. or the... I mean, I, I don't know offhand. Newcastle has been reported more likely when they buy players, pay most of the money up front and not necessarily in installments. That's what some reports have been saying. Wow. I haven't really done a Newcastle deal for some time, so I'm not sure on that. But the other way around with Spurs... Buying a player from Newcastle, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. Unfortunately, fair enough. Um, so, w- when, when negotiating a contract for
3: a player, why are clauses so commonly used, and and w- what's their purpose? And then, obviously, specifically, we've got an issue with Toby Alderweireld cur- currently, where um, I you may or may know, not know the of this, but he can leave for for a fee of around 26 million pound mm. in a window of three weeks mm. during the transfer. Window in, in, in um, the summer this yep. year. So that was a part of a clause that was activated once we extended, we, we yep. took the option to extend these contracts. Yep. Where would that clause come from, do you think?
4: Well, it would come from, I would say, pretty savvy negotiations from the player's agent. That, for example, and it happens a lot of the time, that if um, um, a club has what's called a universal, a unilateral option, which is something that the club can automatically trigger. And there's a query over whether that's legal or not, by the way, um, from an employment law perspective, but let's not go there at the moment. Um, But regardless of that point, um, what I would sometimes try and um, uh, say to agents, who uh, are subject to a club saying, "Well, we want a three-year deal, but we want a one-year option to be able to extend." And it's reported that Manchester United do that this quite a lot as well as Spurs. Well it all of like, yeah. then, what what can happen is the counter offer to that sometimes can be, "Okay, well, we'll give you that one extra year option, unilateral option, but we want a period where we can get we can um, insert a set amount." as a release clause to be triggered during a particular period of time Mm. the query is with release clauses is and it's happened quite a a lot um, at different times is whether because the player's contract is confidential whether actually um, uh, an agent can uh, put himself in a difficult position of not being able to disclose what the release clause number is so how do we know I don't know so it might not be true may not be Good. Or someone is br- either side or briefing journalists about what's going on. It's weird because it did come out. If it was released in a news, news story.
3: Um, it wasn't the club, it wouldn't have been the club. So it's just something... Yeah. It's, it seems now just to be an ether. And yeah, be.
4: and there's a wider point here as well, again, which, you, which I touch on the book, about just the, the press generally, um, which is whenever I read a story now in the press... And what I try and explain to uh, fans in the, bu- in the book is don't consider what's written as the main element to what you should take away from the story. Mm-hmm. Consider why it's been written and what it says and what it doesn't say, because very quickly, usually you can most fans, most savvy fans will very quickly get a grip on who it's being said by or on behalf of mm-hmm. why it's being said and the reason behind why it's being said it may be from club side to say we want to you know re-sign the player it may be from club side to try and sell the player it may be from the agent side to try and get a better deal with the club by trying to pretend that there's interest in that player from elsewhere so so there's a sort of Machiavellian undercurrent well you call it Machiavellian I mean a lot of people would just say it's Playing the game to extract maximum leverage from your position. <laughs> yeah, if your fans are just sitting there going,
3: "Wow!" Every two minutes, "Are oh, we going to buy this player? Are going to buy yeah. this player?" And then, really, it's just this game that's being played in order to
4: negotiate a best possible outcome for whatever client that's being represented, or the exact opposite, which can be, de- de- um, you know, destabilizing players. You know, what, what we, what, what the narrative that a lot of fans will always see is. Um, the the bad agent trying to unsettle the player in order to get or the club to Definitely. get a move somewhere else that's the narrative and yeah. everybody understands the rules of the game the flip side of that is um, nobody sees or nobody seems to be quite as aware that when a club wants to sell you you're done as a player really, really? depending on you know you, you don't you're not going to play anymore obviously because you're not part of the manager's plans mm. um the club may still set a very high transfer fee for you, which may put you in trouble as well. And fans aren't as bothered about players not showing loyalty when the club wants to get rid of you. Exactly right. We've talked about this a lot. So it's a, tri- it's a tricky balance. Me as a fan, obviously, you want your best players to stay. Mm. But at the same time, as soon as a player isn't um, fit for the team anymore, then you, you know, he gets brushed aside pretty quickly.
3: Have you ever been involved in a deal
4: for a player that's leaving the club that you support that you didn't want to leave <laughs> so, well I think we can be quite specific there I mean I'm pretty open that I'm a Liverpool fan right. uh, and no I haven't he wasn't the, involved uh, in Coutinho the Coutinho no event? no no but um, generally um, the, the, the interesting element about that is is that if a player um, wants to leave and puts a transfer request in under the Premier League rules for example then they're not entitled to certain remaining loyalty bonuses and signing on fees etc because wow. you forsake it because you're effectively not showing loyalty because you're wanting to leave yeah. that's why transfer requests in a way are becoming a little less common mm. because players are realising that um, you know when a player leaves the opposite can also be the case so just talked about now if a club wants to get a player off his books the player says Okay, well, you don't want me anymore, fine. But I've still got three and a half years left on my contract. Why should I give that up? Yeah, why should I give that up? So if you want to sell me, you can get whatever transfer fee you want within reason. But I want to get paid for my three and a half years left on my contract. So that has to come out of the transfer fee? Well, no, it comes out in the end of the club, the the selling club, deciding how much it's willing to pay off their player in order to incentivise him to leave.
3: Right it's mad isn't it I mean it's pretty for me it's that what's most confusing is or or hard to grasp is how many different um, balls are being juggled or plates are being held spinning in the air just to keep a club ticking over because you think of like you mentioned about the amount of money and the instalments that are being paid on one transfer Mm -hmm. deal but all of these players have come in from other clubs unless it's quite rare that clubs have kind of academy graduates coming in so the cash flow must be a my in a club as well. It must be crazy.
4: Well, that's why you have, you know, chief financial officers. I mean, we're talking about huge... We're talking about large sums that are flowing in and out at particular times of the year. Now, what will sometimes happen, The the CFO will... Uh, know or try and align particular payments to particular times where the where the club is going to be more cash rich. So times when broadcasting monies are due, when they know transfer fees are coming in for particular installments, mm-hmm. or otherwise. So you know, this is you know a multi-million pound business with um, you know pretty complex financial structures and um, you know security in place to make sure that things are done in the right way. Mm. Um, do you think Daniel Levy is a good chairman? Don't know. I mean, I say I don't know because I've never met him. Um and I only read what's reported, so I can't I can't say it either, I'm afraid. Okay, fair enough. I was
3: gonna ask if you had any legal side or had any any kind of input in the stadium build of YLN.
4: No, I haven't unfortunately. Only that um, you know, my uh my in laws are all big Spurs fans. So um, right. you know, um, they were obviously really happy. I mean look the stadium from what people have said that I've went in, have been in to see it at least at different times says it's absolutely magnificent but yeah. there's no doubt there's been big delays which has caused, caused controversy. What, what, what is the legality around building a stadium of that size? Is it complex? Oh well you're, well you're asking the wrong guy now. I mean the, the truth is is that that is um, uh, real estate construction and contractor and subcontractor liabilities which is couldn't be further away from my area of competency <laughs> whatsoever I'm afraid. But in your best guess is it quite a difficult thing in a legal sense to get oh that. it must be incredibly difficult where you've got a master uh, a master services arrangement agreement or the equivalent of you know um, a building contract with the amount of contractors and subcontractors I can only imagine how difficult it must be yeah um, were you surprised by
3: Spurs's lack of spending in the summer transfer market can you comment on that
4: or well there's a few things obviously going on here and it's all Publicly, publicly available info is that you know Spurs have had to commit huge sums to the stadium that leaves a hole obviously to fill second point also is financial fair play uh, where clubs have to balance their books to, to break even otherwise they can be sanctioned accordingly does that include cap- capital? it doesn't include capital uh, stadium projects which you, you're completely right on Um, uh, The the other element also is that um, Spurs generally and historically have been um, pretty frugal with their spending anyway. So this isn't like it's a new occurrence, but at the same time, you know, Spurs not buying anyone in the summer was obviously not what I'm sure your manager would have wanted. But ultimately, and this goes back to the same point we talked about on wages, it looked like over the last six to nine months that Spurs have um, entered into new agreements with a number of your top players. Mm. Now, that has definitely not come cheap. I wouldn't have thought. Whether that's broken the wage structures that um, the executive team had in place for their elite players, I don't know. But all I would say is, is that when you tie up a lot of your high-profile talent to new long-term deals, you're very likely to incur quite big extra costs on a weekly basis and that obviously impacts on your overall budget mm. do you, there seems to be a lot of clubs acting a little bit more
3: frugally now Liverpool made two big signings mm. but improved the, the squad significantly and eventually you think that would pay off if you end up winning Premier League trophies and, and whatnot. not but um, do you think we're heading for a more frugal football industry in that financial fair p- teams do seem to be trying to be compliant to financial mm. fair
4: play um, yeah I, I agree so I mean there's a really good doc which came out last week um, for any financial buffs among uh, your listeners which is called the um, UEFA Benchmarking Report and it's not just finance stuff it's all really interesting stats.
3: Is that the... You tweeted it?
4: Yes. Yes, so I was reading it on the train. Yeah, it's a tough read in parts but it's really, really interesting just to get to grips with and one of the pages um, is a really interesting one talking about pre-FFP club combined losses was over 1.7 billion euros. Mm. Now that 's gone to um, I think overall profit in the last season, wow. which is an incredible transformation now, query whether clubs were spending very close to the beginning of the FFP uh, regulatory environment in order to try and yeah. what gain the system don 't know how that works in practice, but the contrast is significant yeah. and we're seeing even today I think or yesterday it was reported that Liverpool may be the first I think EPL team to break the £100 million profit um, uh, uh, cap basic not cap profit margin not profit margin but profit made for any particular season and that's in part because of the Coutinho sale and because of their big run to the Champions League final yeah. so um, and then it's been reported along lots of different seasons I think last season's worth of accounts 18 is mentioned in the book 18 out of the 20 clubs made profit or didn't make loss for last season whereas if you compare that to the 12 13 season so many were making yeah, huge losses I mean,
3: etc I, I remember one article and this may, may be wrong because it, it was many years ago but there was only two teams that were in the black yeah. in the Premier League and that's very common but then there's no incentive really to be a to make profit when there is no regulations that stops you
4: well this is going back to one of the fundamental principles that we've talked about before and that that is the anomaly that is the football industry or the sports industry generally which is you know in business on the whole even if it's in the long term even if um, shops businesses companies are making losses um, in the short term ideally it is in the end to make profit and make and make returns for shareholders and or owners Mm it's it's completely uh, it's completely different in the football setting because clubs aren't there to make profits for anybody they're there to win trophies and g- gain success for From their fans f- fans perspective so what we're effectively saying is clubs are glory maximizers whereas normal companies are profit maximizers so if you enter the football sphere with not a profit maximizing idea but a glory maximizing model then any billionaire owner presumably would spend as much as he could in order to gain glory for the team that he has bought. Do You, you don't. I mean, that's not reality, though, is it? That's not how. Well, it kind of you, has been in the past. If yeah, we if we if we talk about
3: Mansour, um, yeah, exactly. For sure, but so
4: Spurs definitely not that. No, not and after. there's lots of different ownership models that yeah. we take into account. And what what that means is that if. Um, you know a billionaire owner can't come in spend huge amounts anymore because everybody has to live within their means then that presumably promotes pretty good financial uh, awareness management practices across the board I think that the kind of go-to thing with financial fair play was once it's so restrictive it's
3: going to be damaging for the game but actually if you think of the people that are affected by relegation by that reckless spending Mm. you know people go out of jobs yep normal human beings that work at football clubs lose their jobs and, and have to find new ones so, and, and it has a massive massive negative impact
4: so I think it's not necessarily a bad thing but what's, what's your opinion on it overall? Well I've always been relatively positive about FFP mm-hmm. um, it obviously isn't there to improve competitive balance which is um, how do you level the playing field you don't level the playing field by FFP necessarily but what you do is you you incentivise clubs to live within their means, definitely a positive there I think the other thing to bear in mind is a lot of critics of FFP say well it just closes the drawbridge for new ambitious owners that want to come in and spend a huge mm-hmm. amount in order to uh, compete against the now established elite I-, I agree to some extent there but all the different rules be it UEFA rules, be it Premier League rules be it uh, uh, championship rules etc they do allow for spending beyond your means
0: UEFA?
4: 30, is it 30% well, there's all different, different contexts so with UEFA's rules you uh, can't spend more than around 10 million euros per season more than you earn but if you show a business plan which says over 4 years we're going to spend this amount in order to then recoup it through commercial revenues through commercial success whatever it is mm. that's a possibility Premier League rules you're allowed to spend what, £105 million more than you earn over a three year period and a smaller amount in the, the, the championship as well so the, the point generally is is that it's not like all of a sudden the drawbridge has been raised and clubs can never spend any more than they earn ever again mm. but at the same time I think completely agree with you said there has to be a level of rationality in club spending these days because otherwise I don't think any fan I know loads of Leeds fans I know some Portsmouth fans back in the day it was like they were saying to me a lot where I don't know if I saying you guys was like I'd much have preferred not to have had those potential glory days if I'd known we would have been close to going bankrupt insolvent, and, and out of business. And a loss, loss, loss of the club. And a complete loss of the and club. the thing
3: is it's, uh, with Rizdale, he he's Rizdale, he, his motives were the right ones it was the glory mm-hmm. what did you call it? The glory glory maximiser. Glory maximiser. And when, and when you first said that I was like no, well, no club's going to behave like that but you think when buy, teams that, owners are buying clubs and they've got more money than they can ever spend the next thing that, that they want to use that money for is to feel all of that mm. glory, to feel glory, isn't it? So yep. it's find more valuable than the money they've got, and that's why they spend. Okay, we're going to wrap it up, but before that, um, just a couple of questions on the book. What, well, why did you? What, where did it come from? Good question.
4: <laughs> what, 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 did you get a good idea? Did you have a publisher lined up? And that? Well, kind of uh, ultimately, it was with all the blogs that I'd done over the years on my on my website, DanielG.com, And um, a couple of journalist pals just said, "Look, it's all your stuff's, pretty good and it's really accessible, Mm. you're you're writing something that people aren't really writing about, Um, I should put you in touch with my agent, who might be able to do something. And I was like, bloody hell, well, you're getting an agent, it sounds a bit weird and a bit pretentious. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's 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 often the toughest part. Yeah, exactly, and to be fair, um, I met David Luxton, the nicest guy you can ever imagine, but he was brutal in the beginning, and rightly so, he was like... Dan it's not like there aren't enough football books out there and he was right which then you know it makes you up your game to say well actually I think I've got something a bit different to say Mm -hmm. which is this is the inside track about what fans should know a bit more about to give them more information about the industry that's Mm -hmm. more or less what it is and I put my proposal forward did a sample chapter on the transfers and contracts and then literally two months went by didn't hear anything from David at all and you felt like that jilted lover or when well, you had a great first date with someone had a really yeah. lovely couple of hours chat yeah. and uh, you think it goes well and you never hear from, you never hear from them again and Have you written
3: anything in that time?
4: Um, I, mean, yeah, what, so, I mean, in terms of, so I'd written about three thousand word proposal and right. about a four thousand word chapter. So a fair amount of words. Yeah, and so after a while, I was like, I'm back from David, and I was like, oh well, that's obviously you know the sign as it goes. Mm-hmm. I wrote to him, sort of you know half circumspect, going so <laughs> just checking in. <laughs> Ballot book deal. And yeah, and it turns out he's actually one of the most self-effacing and humble guys around because he had three incredibly large books that were being published by authors of his that went did brilliantly yeah. and he had so much on his plate what he hadn't told me was actually he really liked the proposal and uh, ch- sample chapter and had sent it off to five publishers oh. and I'd already got some potential interest in them and Bloomsbury was one of them yeah. so I was like oh bloody hell so, <laughs> so much from being <laughs> like on the yeah, the jilted, yeah, j- the jilted you know, yeah. potential uh, writer here I am on the cusp of Bloomsbury Sports signing me up to do um, do Incredible. a deal and as soon as they were interested I mean I was like right just you know, play, cool, play it cool down, yeah. but actually just get the bloody deal signed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what, did,
3: so what did that, does that
4: deal mean? How does that work? So they give you a deadline, didn't they? Yeah, exactly right. They gave me about um, uh, a 20-month deadline to write the book. And so I got very excited for about two days, had a few drinks yeah. with the missus. Yeah. Um, and Holly, my wife, then said, okay, we need to actually work out how long it's going to take you to write because we're like, this is about 75,000 words for you to write which is a fair amount when you have got a job a fair amount we got a job and two kids and three at the time and yeah. so um, we we spent about a week or so literally planning out planning a year almost two years worth of writing and we came to the end of it and she was like you're a month behind already <laughs> <laughs> no. and then we had to work out how much actual time we was going to have to spend doing it and yeah. so what we worked out and you know she's been a saint the whole way through the process because it's been it's Being bloody hard work is the truth, I've had to spend 10 hours a week for two years, more than two years in the end with proofing and then editing and changing for probably almost three years. So four hours on a Sunday night, three hours on a Monday night, three hours on a Tuesday night. I think that adds to 10, yeah. And that's what I've had to do week in, week out for three years over my day job and the rest. And it's not like you don't have a job that... I can't imagine you just pack up at five and go out. Unfortunately not, no. But you know, it's been such a great process, but a tough one at the same time. And that's why now I'm here. You know, I almost, I I feel like proud and a real great sense of accomplishment and something I'm just be like, you know what, enjoy the ride and enjoy the sort of launch and enjoy, you know, hopefully the nice things that some people might write because, you know, it's been a great journey and something, you know, four or five years ago I wouldn't have thought would be possible.
3: Yeah, I read some good stuff on the Bloomsbury website, some nice reviews and nice comments and stuff. Gianlu- uh, Gianluca Luca Viali, you yes. right, your forward. Yes, presume you worked with him previously. Didn't you?
4: you didn't just send him a spare. <coughs> so Luca's a top guy. I got introduced to him from a client, and um, I asked him whether he was interested in doing some charity work. So I, I'm, I'm the chairman of a charity called Football Aid, um, which allows teams to play uh, fans to play on their um, pitch, basically on their boyhood pitch or girlhood pitch, in the kit. Uh, meet um, you know ex-pros etc and try and score a goal into the top corner and I did that at Anfield back in 2003 and that's how I got involved originally and met Luca he helped out with loads of different things we got really friendly and bizarrely, you know, and it's funny as a football fan to say, like, you know, I just go out for lunch every now and then with Gianluca Vialli and, and chat to him about life, yeah. which, you know, I don't think there's too many better things I could, I could do with my time, really. And he was, you know, an absolute gent yeah, when I, I asked him just to, you know, write the, write the forward, which is, you know, really, really nice. You didn't get it in the email and thought, oh God, this is terrible. No, or he was like, he was like, who's this guy? <laughs> yeah. So the the nicest thing about it is every now and then I, I sent him a copy when it was about a month or so ago, and I just you know it's like the surreal moment when Luca sends you a message with a picture you him holding your book, yeah, just going yeah. really enjoying it. Amazing. You're like that is You incredible. know you, you know you've, you've done all right. Where can you get it? Obviously have Amazon, get it bookstores.
3: Yeah, all good bookstores. Let me just say it again, just in case. Uh, well, we'll tweet out a link after. It's available
4: pre-order it on, on Amazon now, but it's launching on the 24th. Yeah, 24th so it's available in Waterstones at the moment now um, and then yeah available from the 24th on Amazon to get delivered straight away so yeah please please get involved and let me know your thoughts on it amazing Daniel thank you so much
3: it's at Football Law your, uh, your Twitter isn't yeah. it um, there's so much more I wanted to talk to you about but I've got to let you go because you're very busy um, the stuff about uh, Bosman ruling and Mutu well let's, let's, let's put it in another one for yeah me. if you're up for it we'd love to do another one alright that's it the fighting cock uh, we'll see you next week